This is R.J. Rush Dooney, Easy Chair Number 37, February the 1st, 1983. I've been on the road quite a bit of late, a little more than usual. I was in Dallas for a few days and then in Nebraska for a trial. The trial was at Grand Island, Nebraska, and it was a United Pentecostal Church which was on trial for having a Christian school and refusing to allow the state to control it. Nebraska, of course, is our worst state in these church and state cases. The interesting thing to me was that this was a United Pentecostal Church. There will be more and more Pentecostal churches involved in these trials, and this is not the first case. The interesting thing is that in the past three to five years, Pentecostalism has gone into the Christian school movement with a tremendous zeal and energy. The first of the Pentecostal Christian schools began in the 40s, but it has been only in the past few years that the movement has taken off. The United Pentecostal Church is one of a number of Pentecostal groups. I don't know how many churches they have, and I don't know how many schools they have. I asked one pastor about the matter, and he said that in a meeting of 1,000 United Pentecostal pastors, the question was asked how many of them had begun Christian schools and 600 or more raised their hands. This could mean that the Pentecostal schools could now number well over 6,000. That's just a guess, but when you take in all the Pentecostal schools and the fact that they are growing with a rapidity, they do make up a considerable element of the Christian school population. Another interesting fact to me was that there were Pentecostal pastors from Mississippi to Alaska present at that trial. They were there to lend moral support to that church, and I heard one or two say that when they went back, they were going to start Christian schools also. They were going to be a part of the battle because this was where the battle is. I'm very much encouraged by the fact that more and more schools are being built at a very great and accelerating pace. On top of that, the number of men who are ready to stand up and fight and go to jail if need be is increasing. On the other hand, a very sad fact is that among the general Christian population, there is less and less interest in the battle. In other words, we're seeing here as elsewhere a polarization. In the early days of the church and state battle, it was commonplace for me to see as I went to the court school buses from Christian schools and churches parked up and down the street, people singing or praying on the courthouse steps, the courtroom crowded with great numbers standing out in the hallways. I don't see that anymore. In fact, sometimes the courtroom will be empty 
It was not empty at Grand Island, but neither was it completely full at all times. The sad fact is that the mentality of all too many Christians is not geared to a long-scale battle. When we had the Ashbrook and Dornan amendments on the first occasions, Congress was flooded with mail. This year it was not true. The Dornan and Ashbrook amendments were not passed, and the IRS now has a free field to go after the Christian schools and churches. This because too many Christians are readily weary in well-doing. They're not geared to a long-scale battle, which is what this is. We can be grateful to those pastors and Christian schoolmen who are ready to stand up and fight, ready to stay in the battle. It's not just a battle, let me add, it is a war. And wars don't end with a single battle. They go on year after year. And in the modern era, we see that warfare increases each time a war is fought in its length. Because as warfare becomes more and more ideological, as the issues become more and more religious, there is an intensity on both sides and an unwillingness to surrender. Not too long ago, in fact, just about ten days ago, Otto Scott lent me a book by David Hoare, 1066, The Year of the Conquest. This book is important in terms of what I've just been talking about. It's about the Norman conquest of England under William the Conqueror. Horth makes clear that Anglo-Saxon England was a very superior country, a Christian country. The church did not need reform. The people had a high degree of freedom and prosperity, and they went from this to slavery under the Normans. Thus, the common justification of the conquest is invalid. However, the point that interested me was this. The character of King Harold of England is clearly far more appealing than that of William the Conqueror. Many reasons can be cited for the failure of the English. Certainly, the English came post-haste from a battle against a Danish invasion, which they won hands down. Then, too, the fact that the Pope had blessed the armies of William the Conqueror certainly did not help the morale of the English. They, in effect, had been excommunicated for no good reason. However, I think Haworth puts his finger on a very critical point. Let me quote from page 172 of 1066, The Year of the Conquest, by David Haworth. This book was published, by the way, in 1977 by the Viking Press. Howarth says of King Harold, 
His error was in the concept that this was to be the only and final battle when God would declare his judgment, and not as it might have been the mere beginning of a long campaign, unquote. In other words, King Harold did not plan in terms of a long war against William the Conqueror, but in terms of one battle. He lost that battle in his life because he had pinned everything on one battle when the issue would have been better fought in terms of a long campaign. Now, I submit that that is the problem with too many Christians. They act as if it's a one-stand thing, and this is true of conservatives. The number of Christian and conservative groups that saw a dramatic increase, decrease of their income after the election of Reagan is considerable. I know because many have told me so. After the election, their income nosedived. Supposedly, the millennium had arrived with Reagan. Now, this kind of mentality is a very sorry fact, and we need to recognize that we are in a war, and we have to fight not one, but hundreds and hundreds of battles before we win. If we become weary of well-doing, what we are saying is we're weary with the Lord's cause. We're weary of freedom because the old saying is right. Eternal vigilance is always the price of liberty. Well, I read you an article not too long ago by F. Kefa Sempangi of Uganda about the situation in Uganda. Since then, I've read a book given to me by my daughter, by Sempangi also, entitled A Distant Grief. This was published in 1979. I don't know the price of it, but it is obtainable from Regal Books Division of G.L. Publish Publications, Glendale, California, 91209. I don't have any better address than that. But uh, possibly, if you write to Gospel Literature International, which is G.L. Publications, Glendale, California, 91204, they can tell you the price. At any rate, Sempangi, S-E-M-P-A-N-G-I, in this book deals with the Idi Amin years. He makes clear that the primary target was the Christian community, and the Christians again and again were subjected to the central attack and harassment. Uganda had a fine Christian population 
which went back to 1877 through the dedicated efforts of Alexander uh, Mackey or Mackay, however you want to pronounce it, a Scottish Presbyterian minister, missionary, and a trained engineer. When he went to Uganda, um, Mackey was determined not only to save souls, but to share with them his professional skills. He taught the people to read and to use printing presses, to use modern methods of cultivation, to make roads and build bridges. He made the faith practical. Moreover, he was years, in fact a century in advance of his time because he stressed local and native leadership. Wherever he established a new church, he emphasized the importance of local leaders. He made the tribal chiefs basic to the religious instruction of their peoples. He did everything to develop leadership in the civil government of the natives and in their religious life. This was not done without a sacrifice because within a few years after 1877 and 1885, the first blood of Christian martyrs was shed in Uganda. Then, after the beginning of the century, the new missionaries who came did not share Alexander Mackey's vision, and they were more interested in placing leadership in their own hands. But, all the same, the Ugandan church always had an advantage because of the work of this great missionary. Well, the result was Uganda had, when Idi Amin took power, a tremendous uh, element, a Christian element. On the other hand, Idi Amin was interested in drawing closer to the Marxists. And so he convinced Colonel Qaddafi of Libya that Uganda was a Muslim nation. He declared to Qaddafi that 80% of Uganda's 11 million people were Mohammedans and were being suppressed by a small Christian minority, that they needed liberation from their Christian oppressors and help from Arab peoples. The leaders from Libya and also Saudi Arabia chose to believe Idi Amin's lies. I say they chose to believe because it could have been easily determined if they did not already know that there was no truth in it. What the problem was was very simple. These nations wanted to take over Uganda for Islam at the price of Christian blood. The Muslims were actually only 6% of Uganda's population. The result was that funds were poured into Idi Amin's efforts from both countries. We hear much about 
Libya's help today, but we don't about Saudi Arabia's because, after all, we have good relations with Saudi Arabia and we don't want to embarrass them. The result, of course, was that there was a campaign of terror against Catholics and Protestants by Idi Amin. Sempangi gives a grim account of these tortures. The mass rapes and murders, the hideous things performed, the bodies and the heads left behind or placed in public places as a warning to others. It's a very grim story. Sempangi stresses the fact that his ministry and that the ministry of other Ugandan Christian leaders stressed the practicalities of the faith and the necessity of a stand. They continued their witness in the face of mass murders and everything was done by Idi Amin, to eliminate every educated man and every Christian, and very often the two were one and the same. Let me quote. In early February of 1973, there was a new wave of killings in Kampala. Amin and his advisors drew up a list of 2,000 prominent Ugandans, professors, businessmen, church leaders, government officials, and others, and scheduled them for execution. Ten squads of assassins, largely Nubians from the Brutal State Research Bureau, were commissioned to hunt the victims down. The patterns of arrests were almost always the same. The Nubian assassins, dressed in their uniform of sunglasses, flowered shirts, and bell-bottom trousers, entered an office or home in broad daylight. They called out the name of their victim and humiliated him in front of employees and family members. The terrified man was then tied up and dragged away to the trunk of a waiting automobile. His screams for help meant nothing. No one dared to lend a hand. Only a few victims were killed immediately. The rest were taken to prison and tortured to death by the most sadistic methods. Some were cut with bayonets and made to eat their own flesh. Some were thrown into deep pits of freezing water and fed only enough for a slow, agonizing death. Others had arms, legs, or genitals cut off and were left in the dirt to bleed to death. Women were raped and their reproductive organs set on fire. In one prison, Nagura College, men were tricked into killing each other. A prisoner was given a heavy hammer and promised freedom if he would smash in the head of another. When after many blows his fellow prisoner died, another prisoner was brought to the courtyard with the same promise of freedom to kill the executioner with the same hammer. The chain went on for hours. Soldiers and Nubians gathered in the courtyard to watch the bloody spectacle. They drank gin and laughed and joked. When the killings were quick and merciful, they cursed in anger. When they were slow and torturous, they rejoiced. Their hearts were knit together in a terrible celebration of death and suffering. The bodies of Amin's first victims had been buried in mass graves. Later they were thrown into the river or burned with petrol fires. 
Now dozens of bodies were simply left to rot, unburied in the streets of Kampala. Even the thick wall, stone walls of Makarari University could not keep out the dead. More than once I passed mutilated and discarded bodies on my way to the classroom. One day in January of 73, I attended a meeting of the University Fine Arts Department to discuss with my colleagues a five-year development plan. The meeting moved slowly and my mind often wandered. I thought of the pressing concerns of the church and I wondered how much longer I could continue to be both a pastor and a professor. They were both full-time jobs and I seldom had time for my family. Our daughter, Damali, was almost a year old, was growing up without me. With this thought, my eyes met the eyes of a fellow professor. He was a brilliant man with a compassionate and friendly face, and I saw that he, too, felt a deep distraction. He looked away, but a few minutes later, he spoke aloud. His voice was flat as if he were living in a dream. It is most strange, he said. Here we are, sitting to discuss a five-year plan. And just now, on my way to this building, I passed five dead bodies. It's a tremendous book, and there's much more that I could share with you, but I think this is enough. There are some remarkable Ugandans described in his story, and I commend the book to you. Now I'd like to turn to a very different book, one I very much prize. I'm not sure this is in print any longer. If it is not, it should be reprinted. In fact, I'm certain it is not. It was first published in this country in 1962 by Harcourt, Brace, and World. It's by Ernley, E-R-N-L-E, Bradford, The Great Siege. The Great Siege is the account of the Siege of Malta. It is one of the most remarkable stories in all of history. The Turkish Empire was then at the height of its power under Suleiman the Great. It was 1564. In order to turn the Mediterranean into a Turkish lake, it was necessary to seize Malta. None of the Christian powers were interested in assisting. The Knights of Malta were now a remnant. With all the additions they gained from volunteers who joined them, when the battle began, there were only a total number of 700 Knights of Malta, one Englishman, two Jews. Mostly the others were French and Italian. On top of that, they had other forces, and these other forces were not that numerous, 
nor worth that much. They had a total force of perhaps eight to nine thousand men, besides the six to seven hundred members of the Knights of Malta. However, some of these were galley slaves, for example, five hundred of them who were captured Moslems. All they could do with such men was to use them to repair uh, the defenses and build walls. This was true of a further 1,000 slaves. The others were not well-trained troops or even trained. Thus, the bulk of the battle rusted on the knights. On top of that, La Valette, their great commander, was a man of exactly 70 years of age. Paradoxically, his ancient rival was the Turkish commander Dragut, D as in Denver, R-A-G-U-T. Dragut, a lifetime veteran of wars since his earliest years, was himself 80 years old, but still very fit. Dragut was not a Turk, but had been seized as an infant in Anatolia and made a part of the Turkish military forces. The interesting fact is that both Dragut and Lavalette had at different times fallen captive to one another. Both had had to serve their time as galley slaves. And to be a galley slave was no picnic. And both these men had done their stint in the galleys. Well, to give you an idea of uh, what a galley slave uh, was uh, what his life was like. Let me read the account of Barat de la Pen, a French naval officer. I quote, Many of the galley slaves have not room to sleep at full length, for they put seven men on one bench, that is to say, on a space about ten feet long by four broad. At the bows one sees some thirty sailors who have for their lodging the floor space of the rambates, the platform of the prow, which consists of a rectangular space ten feet long by eight wide. The captain and the officers who live on the poop are scarcely better lodged. The creaking of the blocks and cordage, the loud cries of the sailors, the horrible maledictions of the galley slaves, the groaning of the timbers are mingled with the clank of chains. Calm itself has its inconveniences, as the evil smells which arise from the galley are then so strong that one cannot get away from them in spite of the tobacco with which one is obliged to plug one's nostrils from morning till night. It is not surprising that pestilence and plague often followed the galleys." Unquote. Now, this was the life of a galley slave, never able to stretch out, clogged until he was dead and then thrown overboard, 
compelled to work out a sentence of a given number of years. It was not an easy life. Let me add, by the way, that John Knox, the Scottish reformer, was a galley slave for some time in the French galleys in the Mediterranean. And Knox's life was no picnic. But it is interesting that Knox never says anything to get your sympathy when he writes about his experiences. As a matter of fact, you feel sorry for the people who commanded the ship because Knox, from his chained oar, dominated the situation. He was a fiery Scot, and uh, in no situation was he anything but the dominant man. In fact, the account of uh, uh, John Knox's life aboard a galley is quite a dramatic story, but that's something else. But to return to the siege of Malta. Anyone who survived... Uh, his term as a galley slave was a tough character, and that describes both Labalette of the Knights of Malta and Dragut of the Turkish horses. Now, here we have 700 knights and eight, maybe 9,000 others to help them, some of them not as soldiers, against a force of a minimum of 30,000 and probably 40,000 of the finest of the Turkish army and the Marines and the, the naval forces. This meant that the odds were very definitely unequal. Of course, the Moslems were fanatical, and for them to die in battle meant an instant translation to paradise, but to flee from the battle meant hell. Moreover, the rewards promised the faithful, which were taken very, very seriously in those days by all Moslems, were considerable. Let me read from what Bradley says. The battle, by the way, lasted the siege of Malta almost four months, summer months. Dawn on Saturday, June 16. The island was still damp from the night air and the headland was scented with the sea when the flares ran like fuses along the ramparts of St. Elmo. The defenders had noticed the enemy troops massing. They had heard the high voices of the mullahs calling upon the faithful to die for paradise. One of the saintly murderous brood to carnage and the Koran given stood on the high ravelin and cried out that in the holy war between true believers and Christian, all who fell with their faces toward the enemy would inherit that perfect world promised by the prophet. There in that paradise were wells of clear spring water. The date palms were shady in an eternal afternoon, and the juice of the grape, forbidden to the faithful in this mortal life, would refresh them. Their divinely beautiful houris would welcome such warriors to their arms, 
and the climax of love would last a full 10,000 years, unquote. Well, the defenders had a real problem. They were defending in armor in the heat of summer. The armor added up to about a hundred pounds. Now consider what this means. In fact, some of the armor of the era, one suit of armor in the palace of Valletta has a total weight of 110 pounds. The helmet alone weighs 25 pounds. So we must say that even if they had dispensed with a few pieces to lighten the load, those knights were wearing armor up to 100 pounds in weight. Now, in temperatures which all summer long were 90-ish, metal becomes hot to the touch, sometimes too hot to touch, and they were wearing this armor. They had to be hardy men to survive inside of a suit of armor in that kind of temperature and be able to move around readily and freely and vigorously and fight heroically. Now prissy historians tend to give Lavalette a very bad time as a brutal man, as an example of how terrible some of these Christians were. Lavalette knew what the situation was. He was a defender of Europe. For four months, Italy could hear as the cannonade resonated across the Mediterranean waters, the sound of the battle, so that people in Italy who did not come to help all that time could hear the gunfire, could hear the cannons night and day, four months. The future of Europe was at stake, and Lavalette knew it. He knew as the battle progressed that there would be every temptation on the part of his men to surrender, that he would not be able to hold them in line as the going got impossible, and that the Turks, because the resistance was such, would offer almost anything to get the surrender of those men and to take the island. Realized desperate measures were necessary. So, as Bradford writes, he would impress upon his own followers as well as the Turks that there could be no question of honorable surrender. He gave orders for all Turkish prisoners to be executed. There were many of them in Burgu who had been captured in Marshal Kopier's cavalry raid. They were at once taken before the executioners. Their heads were struck off and their bodies thrown into the sea. While Mustafa's army was collecting the captured cannon in St. Elmo and making them ready for dispatch to Constantinople as trophies of war, 
they were disturbed by the boom of cannon. The large guns on the Cavalier of Fort St. Angelo were firing at them. They were firing the heads of the Turkish prisoners. Even some of those historians who have been determined to find no fault in this extraordinary man, man have been hard put to justify the Grand Master's action. W.H. Prescott wrote he commanded the heads of his Turkish prisoners to be struck off and shot from the large guns into the enemy lines. By way of teaching the Moslem, as the chronicler tells us, a lesson in humanity. A Victorian writer, General Whitworth Porter, commented, it would have been well for his, for the reputation of Lavalette had he restrained the feelings of indignation when this disgraceful event had most naturally evoked within reasonable bounds. But unfortunately, the chronicler is compelled to record that his retalia retaliation was as savage and as unworthy a Christian soldier as was the original deed. Nay, more so, for Mustafa had contented himself with mangling the insensible corpses of his foe, while Lavalette, in the angry excitement of the moment, caused all his Turkish prisoners to be decapitated and their heads to be fired from the guns of St. Angelo into the Ottoman camp. Brutal as was this act and repulsive as it seems to the notions of the modern warrior, it was, alas, too much in accordance with the practice of the age to have been regarded with feelings of disapprobation or even wonderment by the chroniclers of those times. Still, the event casts a shadow over the fair fame of otherwise so illustrious a hero which history regrets to record. Well, in spite of what these men say, what Lavalette was saying to his men by this act is there is no turning back. It is better to die in battle than to surrender to the Turks because having done this, they will spare none of us. Lavalette knew by what he did that not a man in his ranks would dare surrender now because every day every prisoner they took was executed on the walls of the castle in order to tell the Turks, look, we will never ask for mercy because we know now you will never give it. This was how Lavalette ensured the stand of his men, that it would be no surrender under no circumstances would any knight or any of the soldiers give in to the Turks. In spite of that fact, much later, the Turks did offer terms again. The length of the siege was such that it was a humiliating thing if they did not very quickly uh, gain possession of Malta. And so Mustafa ordered Lavalette terms again, that they might retire from Malta to Sicily with the normal honors of war. And to cite uh, Bradford again, a messenger was accordingly dispatched under a flag of truce to the Grand Master in Burgoo. 
Admitted through the landward gate, the messenger's eyes were immediately blindfolded. The man whom Mustafa Pasha had chosen for the mission was an old Greek, a slave, who had been taken captive by the Turks while still a boy. Chosen, perhaps, because he could speak French or Italian, or perhaps because Mustafa felt that a Christian slave would be treated gently, the old man was led in front of Lavalette. The latter listened to the Turkish proposals without deigning to reply. Then he said, Take him away and hang him. The messenger fell at his feet and begged for his life. It was not his fault, he cried, that he had been made the Pasha's messenger. Nor was it his fault that he had been captured and enslaved in Greece those many years ago. It is unlikely that Lavalette had any intention of carrying out his threat. But he was adamant that whatever story got back to the Turkish commander-in-chief Mustafa would clearly under, understand uh, that the Grand Master was inflexible in his determination never to yield. Bandage his eyes again, he ordered. The slave was led out from the council chamber, and they took him out by the gate of Provence and set him between the bastions of Provence and Auvergne. And when he was in the middle of them, they uncovered his eyes and let him see the depth of the ditch between, before him and the height of the walls above. What do you think, they asked. The old man looked at the thickness of the walls, at their height and at the ditch beneath him. The Turks will never take this place, he answered. Then Lavalette gave him his reply to Mustafa's offer. Tell your master that this is the only territory that I will give him. He pointed to the ditch. There lies the land which he may have for his own, provided only that he fills it with the bodies of his Janizaries. They led Mustafa's messenger back between drawn-up ranks of soldiers and blindfolded him again. So frightening had been his experience, so inspiring the guns, the battlements, and the defenses, so grim the silent ranks of armored men that the chronicler tells us he dirtied his breeches. Mustafa's reaction to Lavalette's reply was one of blind fury. He had offered the best of terms to this Christian madman, and the only reply he got was an insult. The conqueror of St. Elmo, the victor of a hundred battlefields from Austria to Persia, was not to be treated in this way by a Christian pirate, the leader of a handful of fanatics. He would take Burgu and Sanglea, he swore, and he would put every member of the accursed order to the sword. Well, they continued the battle, but they did not win. Malta was saved. The Turks had to give up the siege, and about that time a rescue fleet began to be collected to help Malta. Of the 600 to 700 knights, nearly 250 lost their lives, and of those who remained, almost all were badly wounded or crippled for life. Out of the Spanish and foreign soldiers, the slaves, 
and all the others who were in the garrison, totaling nearly 9,000. Only about 600 were left who could still stand. The Turks had known that a few more weeks they could have worn them out, but they were not able to continue. The minimum figure of the Turkish losses from their records numbered 20,000 men. But it seems more likely that the total losses of the expedition were about 30,000. As a result, this battle broke the back of the Turkish power. They rallied once more in 1571 for another great effort, which Don Juan of Austria defeated at the Battle of Lepanto, 1571. The galleys of Malta were present at that battle. Quite a story. Lavalette survived to go back to France some years later when he retired and to die in bed. Well, now on to something very different. As some of you know, I was missionary on an Indian reservation in the 40s to 52. And during that time, I learned a great deal about the Indian past from some of the old-timers because you have to remember that in the 40s, there were still people living who could remember seeing their first white man come across the plains and across the mountains. And the thing that was of very great interest to me was the stories these old men had to tell. Their children and grandchildren and great-grandchildren were not interested. They were more interested in comic books. And because I loved to hear those stories, they came by and talked late into the night telling me those stories. Or when I went to the, one of the two stores there and they were sitting on the bench in front, they were ready to tell me something more that they remembered. I heard many an interesting story. And I heard a great deal about how they lived and how they fished and hunted and how they scalped also. They gave me very detailed and precise uh, accounts of how you went about scalping a man. The Shoshones uh, made a point of saying that they didn't necessarily kill a man when they scalped him. They just took the trophy. Sometimes, if they weren't too mad at him, and they let him live. Well, in the National History issue of February 1983, there is an interesting article by Stephen J. Pine, P-Y-N-E, Indian Fires. The fire practices of North American Indians transformed large areas from forest to grassland. We can surmise that a good deal of the 
area that we know as the plains was probably originally forest. The Indians, by their burning practices, turned it into grasslands because their way very often of hunting was to burn fires and then wait for the game to meet them and then kill them in great numbers and dry them. In fact, as the Indians told me, this was routine in everything. It was to get as much as possible. The idea when they fished was to get fish by the hundreds and thousands and to dry them, smoke them and whatnot. In fact, the older Shoshones and Paiutes told me that it was a white man, a previous missionary, Emil Schwab was his name, S-C-H-W-A-B, who taught them there at that particular area uh, hunting as a sport. They had never hunted as a sport. They only hunted to have food. And when the white man put them on reservations and in the early years fed them by giving them food rations, blanket and clothing rations and whatnot, all hunting ended. And it was only from the white man that they subsequently learned to hunt and to fish as a sport. Originally, they would not fish for half a dozen dozen fish, only if with nets of some sort or another they could take huge amounts. Then was it worth their while. This article is not uh, unfavorable to the Indians. In fact, it leans over backwards to speak of it as a method that is uh, basically good, as a use of fire which helped them live. Now, if a white man had set fires in the same way, uh, scholars like this scientist would be very hostile. In fact, uh, the author goes so far as to say, and I quote, the great American forest may be more a product of settlement than a victim of it, unquote. The idea that the white man is destroying the forest is nonsense. This myth has been propagated year in and year out. It, the forests have been cleared in certain areas and farmlands have come in. But the state of Maine, for example, has as much forest and probably better than when the white man first landed there because there are better practices now whereby forests are thinned so that the growth can be uh, better. Moreover, as the cutting and burning by the Indians proceeded, the forests receded eastward and again westward, and the buffalo began to move into the areas that were burned. The buffaloes were deep into the south and into the areas that we would call the east, 
when the white man uh, landed. So, the fact of Indian burning was beginning to alter dramatically the environment. It was everything that the environmentalists deplore. I'll read just the concluding paragraph because this article is worth your getting and reading in full. The habitat that supported so rich a natural population of grazers and browsers was ideally suited for the domestic stock introduced by Europeans and upon which their agrarian economy was so heavily dependent. In the same way that herders of domesticated stock occupied the openings previously maintained for the harvest of wild game, emigrant farmers moved into the former fields of the Aborigines, fields cleared and fertilized with fire. The early agriculture of the American colonists resembled nothing so much as the shifting agriculture of the Indian, although it was pursued at an accelerated rate. From Indian examples, the colonists also learned fire hunting and the techniques for controlling and surviving fires. Just as European and American explorations of the continent uh, were advanced by having native guides, so settlement advanced, thanks in good measure, to the preparation of Indian hunters, harvesters, and farmers. Well, so much for that particular one. Our time is rather limited now. I'd like to share with you something from an editorial by one of you, Norman Jones. This was an outstanding editorial at the end of last year on his reflections about a Veterans Day program. And I'll read just in part. He says, Many Americans today are seriously questioning the premise that this government or any government is worth the price of war. Their blood. In the 70s, many young men fled to Canada to escape military service. And today, many others are refusing to register for the draft. Who is to say whether they are right or wrong? There are many fuzzy answers being given today to these kinds of questions. It is not sufficient merely to say that someone else's son ought to die for his country. In our land, we have been a most blessed people. We have enjoyed a Christian national heritage. Since the days of our pilgrim Puritan forefathers, we have experienced the truth. Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord, the people whom he has chosen for his own inheritance. An important reason for a national Thanksgiving Day is to thank God for giving us a republic and a constitution based on biblical principles of government and human liberty. On our coins we still read, In God we trust. Our president still takes his oath on the Bible and asks for God's help to discharge his constitutional vows. We continue to reflect. Would all those fallen American servicemen have gone so quickly to war if they had known that one day their government, which was sworn to uphold the law of God and preserve human life, would reverse itself and become the enemy of the unborn? How many would be willing to defend with their lives a Supreme Court which has repealed the law of God against murder? with respect to the most defenseless class in our society. 
Could the present lack of support for war on the part of so many youth be in part due to a growing conviction that their government has lost its moral credibility? Unquote. I submit that is very accurate and very well said. How can Washington expect people to be willing taxpayers, willing soldiers, when Washington has no moral credibility? We have lost our credibility as a government internationally and internally. The people have no trust in Washington. I shall never forget what a mother who was very much a hawk had to say after she surveyed bitterly what we did in Vietnam. She had been for the war in Vietnam, but then she turned to her teenage son and said, I'll disown you if you ever fight for this country. And I encountered that sort of thing all over the country in those days. And it's that feeling which is still there. Those people love this country. They love it intensely. But they will not die for a government, a civil government, that betrays its people and betrays its soldiers. That's the issue. I submit there is a tremendous reserve of moral strength in this country, but it does not find expression in Washington. Well, to end on a milder note, I'd like to pass on to you something that one of our Calcedon men remarked in humor the other day. It was Douglas Kelly, and he said, Behind every great man is a woman saying, I don't have a thing to wear. Well, it's been good to be with you, and I'll be with you again in a couple of weeks. I'm leaving in a couple of hours or so for Montana to testify on the state legislative committee against a measure to control Christian schools. I'll see you again, the Lord willing, in two weeks. Thank you.